Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 163, Writing Rulebooks, an Introduction and Workshop, presented by Joshua Yearsley. I have a whole bunch of slides, so I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, so hello, welcome to Rulebooks at Metatopia. My name is Joshua Yearsley. Uh, that's me with a much thicker beard. Uh, I cut it down because a guy called me an Amish hipster and offered to sell me a recumbent bicycle. <laughs> so just a little bit about me to start off with. I've worked for a number of different game companies, Evil Hat, Z-Man, IDW, worked on a bunch of games. Uh, horrific gratuitous uh, plug. You should check out Root on Kickstarter right now. I'm working on that and it should be awesome. Um, and so I'm an editor and uh, rule books are in this state where I get the sense that nobody really knows what's going on. Um, we are in, we're, we're just, just to be completely honest, nobody really knows what's going on. I think that we're in a state in the industry now where uh, over and over again so much knowledge about how to produce games has kind of been set up in flames. Uh, game companies have, you know, even the titans have, have closed and we keep kind of starting over and over again. We don't really have a chance to build up a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, and so we're, this, we're really in this confused state right now. Uh, and part of the reason is that uh, there are just so many different uh, things in rulebooks that are working against each other. Um, we we have one part of the rulebook kind of fighting against each uh, the other in this medieval brawl. And what I'm talking about here is that the rulebook, first and foremost, has to be a learning tool, uh, but it also has to be a reference tool. You all you have to both be able to learn how to play the game, and then while you are playing the game, you might need to go back or afterwards you might need to be like, okay, I need to find that rule that, uh, where, where is the rule? How do I find the rule in this rule book? Um, and so this is fundamentally uh, opposed because when you're trying to learn something, you learn something in sort of a narrative way. You, you get a beginning, a middle, and an end. You understand uh, uh, where you start, how you play, and how the game ends. 
uh, and it's selective. When you're learning something, you don't need somebody to tell you literally everything, literally every edge case, every interaction. Uh, if you try to do that, it's going to be absolutely overwhelming. And so a learning tool has to be selective. You have to choose when you teach uh, the reader uh, uh, the important things versus the not important things. Whereas a reference, a reference is indexed. A reference has to be organized in some way where you can go back, you understand how it's organized, uh, and it has to be exhaustive. The reference should give you as much information as possible, all of the relevant information, as much of it in one place as possible, so that when you do go to that place, looking for that rule, you find it. And so these, these are exclusive, and so this is, this is kind of a fundamental problem that we're working with with rule books. Second problem is that people learn in really different ways. Um, like this baby right here. Some people are going to learn through pictures, diagrams, you know, they're visual learners. Some people are going to learn through video and audio. And kind of the consequence of this the other thing I want to say, the consequence of this is that uh, until we can somehow cram you know, video and audio into a rulebook directly, um, the rulebook itself is never going to be a, uh, a fully inclusive learning tool. It's only going to be one part of the picture. And we're starting to see this with learn to play videos, um, actual plays, like we're, we're in the you know past five or six years, we're starting to build up more pillars of teaching people games um, where some rule books might have been uh, you know re really intimidating before. Uh, if you learn better by video, it's great that we're starting to build up these other these other pillars of learning. So just know that your your rule book is never going to be the the end all be all for all of your readers. Um, so that, that is another thing working against the rule book is that it can't quite do all of that yet. Next thing is that uh, a rule book can be so, so different depending upon the type of game you're making. You might have a game like Jungle Speed um, where things are moving very fast paced um, and you need to be able to teach the rules so that your player can remember you know, what's happening in this moment-to-moment -moment play. You might have a really complicated board game like Battlestar Galactica. You might have a LARP. So every type of rulebook is, uh, depending upon the game that the rulebook is for, is gonna, it's going to be trying to accomplish different goals. Uh, and finally, uh, we're, we're sort of babies. I, I, I put tabletop games here in the 2000s not to deride um, where people have been before, you know, we've we've been making we've been making uh, tabletop games technically for thousands of years. Um, but when you really look at uh, the rate of games coming out per year, it starts off really really low, and then right around, bas basically right around the time of Catan, it just shoots basically straight up. And so we're in an age where games are becoming part of the actual mainstream. Um, and uh, we're at a point where we can actually start to build up that institutional knowledge. But we are babies compared to some of the other art forms out there. <laughs> so to sum it all up, 
We have technical content in a rule book. We have to meet varying goals. We must suit various audiences. We have to suit various learning styles. And we have little definitive research on rule books. There is no book about rule books out there. Plug number two, I'm writing one. <laughs> but there's really not a whole lot out there. And so go easy on yourself when you're writing your rule book. Rule books are really, really hard. Uh, and besides, we can't even uh, agree on just regular old English language stuff. Like, here's a diagram about sandwiches. Uh, some of you may have seen this. Uh, this is showing uh, all of the different ways that you can consider what a sandwich is. So here you have the sandwich traditionalists. So a BLT is a sandwich. And all the way down here, you have radical sandwich anarchy, where a Pop-Tart is a sandwich. So <laughs> we have this one word sandwich that can you is. Find that online? Yes. Yeah. And I'm gonna put. I'm gonna post this uh, up on my website afterwards, so you'll be able to find all of this there. Um, uh, so even this one word in English uh, has some 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 different meanings, and so uh, language is already just incredibly hard. So go easy on yourself. So there are two fundamental parts of a rulebook that we could look at. We could look at the structure of the rulebook, how everything is organized, um, or we could look at the text. You know, the actual just like sentence by sentence text of the rulebook, and rulebooks as a topic is so, so big that I'm not even going to talk about the text today. <laughs> the structure uh, is sort of where you're starting. If you don't have a good structure, everything else is going to fall apart. So I thought it more appropriate to talk mostly about structure today. So that's what I'm going to talk about. So as I said before, structure, uh, structure is how you're organizing your rule book. What chunks of stuff you're putting where, just broadly. Um, the very first question that you have to answer about your game is whether you need one book or two books. And so this can take many forms. If you're making a, a role-playing game, for example, you might have a Game Master book-centered book and a player-centered book. Uh, if you're doing a board game, you might have a learn-to-play book and a rules reference book. Uh, if you've played any Fantasy Flight games, uh, they've been doing this quite a lot recently, and they're actually starting to get good at it, so check out how they do it. So that's the first question, is you have to figure out whether you want one book or two books. I'm sorry, who did you say? Did Fantasy Flight. Yep. Um, again, this is a gigantic topic. I'm going to talk about it a little bit through the course of this. Um, but take a look at examples out there and see whether you have just enough content to split it up. Um, the bigger your book is, um, the, the more incentive you have to split it up into two books. Uh, and the more important it is to, uh, to cordon off information from each other. For example, if your uh, role-playing game has lots of secret stuff going on, and you really don't want your players to accidentally stumble on it, you might split it up into another book. Um, or if you find that things just get so uh, so in, so enmeshed and you can't you can't figure out the structure in one book that splitting in, it into two books helps you clarify which what each one is trying to do that can be another sign that you want to split it into two books but I'll talk about this more over the course of the presentation but that is the first question you should be asking yourself is whether you want to do one book or two books or more books but we'll keep it at one versus two right now um, and so, as I said before, 
uh, when we're thinking about rule books in terms of learning tools and reference, these are exclusive things. So if you find yourself struggling between the narrative approach and an indexed approach, whether it's something like uh, alphabetical um, or some other organization style, you might want to split it up into, into two books. Uh, and so mainly for the rest of this uh, presentation, I'm going to be talking about how to do it in one book. Um, two books is hard, I'm just going to say. Uh, two books requires uh, a lot of, it requires a lot of work making sure that absolutely everything, if you're doing like a learn to play and a rules reference, you have to make sure that everything matches, which is very difficult, and you can actually trip yourself up by trying to do it. And so it's, it's, it can be, it's good, you know, if, if you have experience, if you know, uh, if you know what you're looking for, if you know, uh, if you know rule books and you know how to make sure that everything is, uh, is, uh, consistent between the two, especially if you have a team helping you. Um, doing two books requires lots of eyes, lots of different sets of eyes to make sure that it's working right. So because it's so complicated, I'm mostly going to talk about one book. So any game, whether it's a board game or role-playing game, um, is pretty much going to have a core loop to it. So what I mean by core loop is, so in a board game it could be like, all right, during a round, we have turns, and on each turn you have, you know, phase A, phase B, phase C. When that's done, your turn is over. And you repeat that, and you repeat that, and you repeat that, and you repeat that. For a role-playing game, role-playing games, it's often a little bit more open, um, whereas board games are, are very strictly mechanical. Role-playing games provide spaces players and game masters to interact. They're like, okay, we have certain mechanics to, uh, to it's, a, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like uh, uh, stations along a, along a train track, not to put a railroading metaphor in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in role-playing games, you have, say, a resolution mechanic. You have like a, I want to do this thing. Okay, we'll roll the dice. Um, you, your core loop might be very, very small in that case, where it's just like, all right, when I want to do something, I roll the dice, we resolve it in some way, and then we just keep going along our merry way. Um, whereas in a board game, it's more tightly constrained. It's like, you're doing phase A, phase B, phase C, you know, you're going around and around and around until you're done. So the core loop can look a little bit different based on, on the game you're making. Um, but we're missing some parts here. Uh, what are the parts we are missing besides the core loop? Shout it out. I know you know this. <laughs> besides just the turn-to-turn -turn stuff, what are we missing in the rule book here? Yeah. Uh, setup. Yep. Objective, setup, and... How you win. How you win. Yep. So, before the core loop, we want to know how, you know, what are the things that we are using to play this game? What are our components? And how are we setting up the starting game state? Um, without all of this stuff, we wouldn't know how to, how to play the game. We wouldn't know what this uh, piece does, where it's supposed to be, anything like that. And we need to know how the game ends. Uh, unless you're playing some sort of weird game where you play forever until you die, I would not recommend playing any of those games. So yeah, so this is just the, the very, 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 very basic 
essentials for your rulebook. Component setup, your game loop, and end of game. This is generally for, it's, it's easier to talk about this in terms of board games. Uh, in role-playing games, you're not, I, the, your components are gonna look very different from your, your board game. Uh, in a role-playing game, you might use the opportunity to talk about your character sheet. Just any essential things that the character, not the character, the player, um, <laughs> that the character, I just said it again, that the player needs to know uh, to, to start setting up the game and to start playing. Uh, but of course, uh, we are missing the introduction here. And the introduction is important because the introduction gives you a view of the whole elephant of your game. So there's this fable uh, about some blind men walking up to an elephant. They don't know it's an elephant, and so they start poking around the elephant. They start feeling different parts of the elephant. And one of them is like, oh, this is like a snake right here. Uh, the, the other blind person is like, uh, this is huge and flat. You know, they're all kind of groping around this elephant. Um, or it's like a tree branch, and they're groping around this elephant, and they're trying to figure out what it is, but because they don't have a sense of the full thing, um, they get confused about what they're, supposed, what they're supposed to see. They only have a very limited view of this elephant, and so they assume that it's going to work in a different way than it does. So the introduction is absolutely important. Uh, for informing your players how everything fits together, what the shape of that whole elephant is. But we cannot feed everything to the player in one chunk. As delicious as Tickle Me Elmo might be, uh, we can't shove the whole cake of your game down, the uh, down your reader's uh, gullet all at once. And so what we have to do is we have to break this cake into chunks. We have to cut up the cake into little baby pieces to make sure that they don't choke on it. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we can uh, chunk our rules so that we're not overwhelming our reader. So we have our game loop, and what I want to do is I want to uh, shift from thinking about this as a loop to thinking about this as weight about learn about the amount of effort you need to learn a particular part of the game. So each rule in your book is going to add learning weights. And so fundamentally when you're thinking about rule books, you want to get a sense of what different parts of your game are hardest to teach. What different parts of your game take the longest? Uh, what parts of your game are most important. And all of that is going to encompass the weight of that particular part of teaching your game. And so if we can split up our core elements, the things that we need to teach the player just to get started, if any of you are like Silicon Valley followers, our like minimum viable product, basically, the core of our game, if we can identify that and separate it from everything else, we're already off on a good start. And then we need to figure out how to order it. We need to figure out what order to introduce our concepts in so that it makes sense. And so I call this chunking. You can call it whatever you want. And so beyond, so before we had a template, now we're building on this template. 
So now we have our introduction objective components set up core loop. And then I say subsystems. So our core loop, as I said before, our core loop is our minimum viable game, our minimum viable product. Um, this is the, the core loop is sort of the thing that you might, uh, uh, if you're teaching the game just to players at a table, you might give them the introduction objective, and then you might just give them the core loop. Think of subsystems as things you might explain to the players at your table uh, only once you like get to that part of the game, or only once it becomes relevant. So identify the systems that you don't need to, say, teach the game to somebody at the table to get them started, to get the ball rolling. Put that first, and then order your subsystems after that. Uh, however, in some rule books, we see something a little bit different than this. We don't just see the core first and then all the subsystems afterwards. Um, for example, um, say, I'm sure some of you have heard of the game Magic Gathering. Um, before just the like turn to turn, like, okay, here's what you do on your turn. In the, a rule book for Magic the Gathering, and don't, don't cheat if you've already read it, um, what might you see before the core loop of the rule book? Introduction. Between the good, but between the introduction and the core loop, to under yes. Well, in the in the original rulebook for Alpha, there was a short story about <laughs> wizards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How to read the card. Yep. How to read the cards, because if you don't understand a you know a fundamental uh, language of how the game works, of like okay, here's a mana cost. Here's the effect. If you don't understand those very basic fundamentals about this key, and I mean, basically one of the only components of the entire game is just the card. If you don't understand some of the fundamentals of that component, you're not going to understand what it means when the game says, okay, on your turn, you can play cards by spending mana. It's like, I don't know what mana is. So you... <laughs> Uh, so you, you, you have to chunk things in a way so that, uh, so that people understand it. Um, Endeavor is a game that came out about a decade ago that I think does a very good job of chunking rules. Um, it's a little bit difficult to see and absolutely don't try to read any of this. I'm just going to give you the basic idea of what's going on here. So. When Endeavor starts explaining its core loop, it does a very good job of breaking down uh, each part off of an introduction. So under playing the game, it basically says, this game lasts seven rounds, consisting of four phases. So it tells you when the game ends. It tells you that there are four phases. Uh, it gives you some other information that is relevant to all of those phases. And then it gives you a summary of each one of those phases. It says phase one, the build phase. It literally just says, players build new buildings for themselves. It gives you the one sentence breakdown of what's going to happen then. Not intimidating at all. The growth phase, the salary phase, the action phase. Uh, so each one, of, each one of these gives you the, their shortest possible uh, description of what happens in this phase. And the reason that we're doing this is that we're creating hooks for readers to grab onto. They're saying, okay, 
I can read this. I can understand what each one of these phases does. I can understand what players build new buildings for themselves means. And so it sets off this non-intimidating structure where you present things to the reader proportional to uh, how much they know already. So if you don't know anything to begin with, you want to start with only giving them a little bit. So that's a, that's a fundamental thing. That is how you chunk. You start with a little bit, and then you build up to bigger things. So we have, this is basically the whole game. It tells you literally in that box the whole game. Then it tells you the whole round. So it gives you everything in the entire round. And then in each one of these below, it gives you the whole phase. And in each one of these boxes, you're going to break out into larger and larger and more descriptive, uh, more descriptive descriptions. Um, and it is not a flaw to repeat yourself. As long as you don't create contradictions, you must, you must always be on the lookout for contradictions, but as long as you do not create contradictions, it is not a sin to repeat yourself. If you create hooks for people to learn more easily, you're doing a reader a service. I got a little uh, switched around before. This is actually where I needed to talk about Magic the Gathering. Um, so as I was saying before, Sometimes you have concepts that you need to understand anything about how the core loop of the game works. So if you're playing Magic the Gathering, you need to understand what the parts of the card are. You need to set up a fundamental language to use as you're talking about the game as you're going forward. And so in role-playing games, um, you might, you probably don't just want to say, okay, this game includes a character sheet. Like, that's something that would be in a components section. It's just like, we have a character sheet, or in a board game, we have these dice. If you have concepts that inform everything about the core loop, you need to put it before the core loop, or else they're going to start reading it, they're going to start seeing words that they don't understand, and they're not going to know what you mean. Yes? Uh, would you say that there might be an argument for doing it before setup, depending on the context? Before setup, well, that's interesting. Well, setup, setup is something that is very, very, very recipe based, and ideally in a setup. And I'm actually going to show a little bit more about setup later. But ideally in a setup, you want to also just show what you're doing anyway. Like any good board game rulebook now, for example, is going to have a full spread showing the board and the components and numbering. Being like, okay, set up step number one, and then over on the graphic, you have a one that's just right next to the components that you're talking about. And so any any good uh, setup for a board game, at least, any good setup is going to show you while it's telling you what it's talking about. And so that's sort of and that's sort of playing that same function. Okay. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But that's not enough. I mean, mm -hmm. I got one recently that had a beautiful spread with numbered stuff that didn't tell you how to play yep. the game at all. Yeah. <laughs> yep. They thought it was plenty to show you how to set it up. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely have more than just your setup. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. And so our criterion 
for determining whether we put something before the core loop is whether it informs everything after it. It doesn't necessarily have to inform all of the subsystems, but if, it, it, but if something is necessary to inform the stuff that comes after it, you want to begin at the beginning and end and, and at the end. So you need to put uh, any core concepts before the loop, the core loop of your game. Yes? I think I have a question that kind of ties to the previous question mm -hmm. and, and builds on that again. I guess um, the question is, in, in terms of learning structures from your experience, is it helpful for someone to know what a, if, if what this core concept before the core loop is, yeah. is component-based, yeah. and does it help for them to know about that component before they go to put it where it belongs? And I guess that kind of ties back to saying only if, uh, only if, so the question, did everybody hear the question? Okay. Um, it's only necessary if there's something about the component that actually informs the setup. So it's like, okay, you need to put cards in a particular order that maybe there's like a little bit of the card that's like, uh, a particular characteristic of the card or some other component that wouldn't be immediately obvious from uh, from just like a 20-foot view of the board and all of the components. If you if you do have components that have uh, small areas that you need to point out uh, before setting up, yeah, if it's going to help you actually doing the setup, then yeah, note that. Um, don't overwhelm your reader by trying to talk about what that actually does when you're playing the game. But if you do have components with little fiddly, I mean, first of all, if you have components with little fiddly things uh, that are kind of difficult to understand during setup, that might be something to redesign, maybe. Um, but if it's essential to your game, yeah, point it out before setup. I haven't seen a lot of, at least board games, that have needed to do that. Then finally, so after all of this stuff, uh, then we have our glossaries. You don't have to have glossaries. Um, but the thing that glossaries are helpful for is for when throughout your game, as you're going through your rules, you talk about your core, you talk about your subsystems, uh, if you find that you have just a whole chunk of information, a big weighty piece, a big weighty subsection, that is far out of proportion to everything else, and there's a lot of information that can, that you don't absolutely need to know in that moment. For example, um, if you have a uh, card game and like there are say 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 uh, Dominion for example. So Dominion is a deck builder. Uh, that has lots of preset card card types, and they all do different things. You have lots and lots and lots and lots of types of cards. Um, they all have the same sort of structure, but they all have different effects. Uh, if you have a whole bunch of uh, uh, lengthy descriptions of all of those card effects, each individual card effect, that's going to be adding a lot to your base rules. The player doesn't need to know the literal effect of every single card in the core in the core rules, or even in the descriptions of subsystems after that. If you have a whole lot of repeating information about a 
uh, card effect, or perhaps you're making a game with like building tiles and they have their own effects. Basically, any any sort of effect that might need clarification uh, that you have a whole whole lot of, you might want to stick in the glossary. Think of it as a need to know sort of thing. The core is at the beginning because it's the thing that you need to know before you talk about the subsystems. Once you get to the subsystems, you don't need to know every card effect. So you put that in its own place, and that is the glossary. The glossary is your um, sort of least need to know to actually understand the game space. We sort of, we, we run into some problems with this sometimes because um, Every time you shuttle information out of its most relevant place, you're creating a little bit of a tug of war between where something is relevant and where something is useful. So to go back to the glossary example, we have all of these card effects in Dominion. Um, separating it from the section about like playing cards and thus getting their card effects Separating all that stuff out into a glossary means that you're putting it in a less relevant place. You know, it's off kind of all, all on its own. But you greatly make up for it by making it more useful. Because uh, when somebody is playing the game, they don't want to go into like the middle of the, they don't want to have to like thumb through the, to the middle of the rule books. Like where, where's that thing? If you put it near the end of the rule book, if you put stuff that you need to reference often near the end, this is kind of a common practice, it's easy for somebody to just be like, okay, I go to back, okay, it's right there. And so you have to think about what your reader expectations are. Like where are the places we normally put things? These are kind of uh, implicit, unspoken standards of how we write things. And one of them is glossaries are going to have frequently referenced stuff. The stuff at the end is easier to get to, therefore you put the stuff that you reference in there. So yeah, so this is this is kind of the whole the whole deal. And again, this this is a little it's a little bit more board game focused. Like if I tried if I tried to talk about uh, literally every format of role-playing game, book two, I would be here forever. Um, but this is your basic basic template. Um, and you don't need to worry about writing all this down. I have a whole bunch of um, nice little reference sheets to hand out afterwards. Um, so we've talked about chunking on the big scale. Let's talk about chunking on smaller scales. Let's zoom into individual sections now. So when we have a section of the rulebook, a section is broadly going to talk about four things. It's going to talk about what is the thing, what is, what, what is the thing we're talking about, how do I do the thing we're talking about, when do I do the thing we're talking about, and why do I do the thing we're talking about. Not every section has to have all four. I would advise you, in many cases, not to have all four, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But broadly, these are the four things that we're talking about when we get to the section level. And we want to avoid something like, if, you, if your rulebook has something like this going on, something, something wrong is happening. Why, why is something wrong happening in what you're seeing with your eyes right now? Yeah, it's just a block of text. It's just a big, big old block of text. Um, the, pro the reason that that is a problem, even if all, literally all the rules that you need are in this block of text, um, it is 
avoiding using one of the fundamental uh, uh, practices of language, which is, can anybody, anybody guess? Yeah, paragraphs. Breaks. Yep. Breaks and paragraphs. The paragraph is a language silo. It tells you, without actually having to tell you anything, it tells you implicitly, okay, information that is related, information that is related goes in a paragraph. You just know that. I, I, I don't even really have to tell you that, you just know that implicitly. Information that is related goes in a paragraph with other information that's related to it. Uh, what do we do when we have important information that we want to point out without, say, using bolding or any fancy styling or anything like that? If we have something really important that we want to say and there's a lot of other text, what do we do? We break it into another paragraph. Don't be afraid of a one-sentence paragraph. <laughs> if you have an important rule, a lot more people will be happy with you for breaking it into its own thing than saying, oh, you put a paragraph with one sentence, what is wrong with you? It's, paragraph can be any number of sentences. Paragraph is just literally until the line break happens. But when we're in a section, how can we best order the information in that section? So that's, that's what we want to talk about now. And to, to talk about this, we need to talk about how, how rules get built up in our minds. Any rule is going to have these components to it, any broad, broadly, any system, I should say. Any system is going to have these components. You're going to have your concepts. That's the, what is this? You're going to have your actions. What am I doing? How do I do it? And then, built on top of that, you might have, you will often have, interactions. And so that could be things like, all right, uh, this card effect that I'm playing, uh, well, this other card effect means that if I do this thing, then that's, like, that's going to, these two actions that I'm doing, this card that I'm playing and that card that I'm playing, are going to create sort of an emergent effect. Um, sometimes interactions, you might call edge cases. Those are, those are just interactions that don't happen a lot. So when you start doing the things and those start mixing in interesting ways, those are, those are your interactions. And so broadly, this is like the, the pyramid of any system. You have your concepts, your actions, and your interactions. And so because we're starting from concepts, because concepts are essential to knowing what you're doing, you generally want to put concepts first. You want to know what you're doing before how you do it. Again, I don't need to tell you this. You, you, a lot of you will probably implicitly understand this, but I want to say it out loud. Can, can we get an example uh, of what, what the concept is? Yes, I will in just a moment. Yep. Thank you. So yes. So actions are pretty much the simplest to explain. You may, you must. You cannot. These are these are your fundamental uh, laws of inner of of doing something in the game. So 
you might have seen constructions like this before and it's a problem. So this says first roll the dice. You can't roll the dice when you hold green cards, blue tokens, pinstripe cocktails, or any form of gnome. <laughs> <laughs> then add up the dice. What's wrong with this? Yeah, generally or, or order of operations. Uh, so, what we have here, we have first roll the dice. So that, that's an action, right? You can't roll the dice when you hold green card, blue card, blah, 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 then add up the dice. The problem is, uh, is that we have this big chunk of information that talks about, you might call them edge cases, it talks about particular sorts of limitations that go outside of the basic structure of this action, which is first roll the dice, then add up the dice. It is far more helpful to understand the basic, the basic structure of the system, which is first roll the dice, then add up the dice, without this huge chunk of limiting factor in the middle of them. And so the easiest way to make things simple for your reader is to just give them the damn like basic thing before you give them the exceptions. First roll the dice, then add up the dice. If you have a whole bunch of extra stuff that applies to only some game states, you probably want to separate that. This, this think, uh, whenever you're looking at your rules, think about what your most common game state is going to be. What is the thing that the players are going to be interacting with most of the time? What is your basic, um, your, your basic case study for a turn or for this action? Give that basic case study and then give all of the exceptions and everything after that. So paragraphs. And so it's a little tiny bit uh, uh, misleading to say that the you cannot is an action. And I've been talking about this to split this into its own thing. Um, it's a little bit fuzzy, but this, I mean, this is basically a limitation. Um, this is, this is a, an explanation, some sort of basic positive system that you've given your reader before for how to actually interact with the game. This is, this, these, are, these are the ways that you're inter interacting with the game. Fundamentally, the clarifications afterward about you, you can't do one thing or another, fundamentally, these, these are, are not things that you do do, if that makes sense. Uh, you have your, your positive case study for how you work with your game here, and then your clarifications on times when that doesn't apply below. Then you have uh, clarifications just generally. Uh, you might be tempted to write down sentences starting with that is or in other words. Um, and I would, I would recommend as much as possible to, if you're doing that a lot, try to minimize that. Um, that is kind of a canary in the coal mine that your first explanation of your rule isn't doing your reader justice. Um, because you have to repeat yourself. And I realized before that I said that uh, repeating yourself is not a sin. It is not. 
just know that if you if you start seeing that is or in other words a lot in your individual sections so like in a paragraph you're writing that a whole lot you, you might want to go back to the first time that you said the rule and, and clarify it it's great to use repetition to structure whole sections of your rule book it's less great if you're having to re-explain particular rules um, so before I talked about kind of what sections have. What is x? How do I do x? When do I do x? Why do I do x? So why do I do x is kind of the funny one, right? Like this is this is strategy. This is kind of meta discussion about like designer notes and sorts of things like that. And so you're really not going to want to put the why do I do x in just your plain body text of your rulebook. You're not going to want to say First roll the dice, then add up your dice. You might want to roll your dice when XYZ. You might not want to roll your dice when XYZ. You need to sharply distinguish the why you might do something from all of the other stuff. Because the why is not essential to playing the game. But the good news is that you have lots of tools. You have your body text. You have sidebars. You have examples. You have glossaries. These are all different parts of your rulebook, and they all serve different purposes. Going back to Endeavor again, again, you don't need to read this. This is a sidebar about token storage. How to store your tokens. Yeah. This is not something you need in your body rules, thankfully. Endeavor puts this in a sidebar. Good job, Endeavor. <laughs> It literally says, you may find it useful to. If you find yourself saying you may find it useful to in your rules, that might be something for a sidebar. And so to wrap all of this part up, we have our concepts, our actions, our limitations, and our interactions. Concepts, what are we talking about? Actions, what is the thing you do? Limitations, when, where, how can you not do the thing? Interactions, how do the actions and limitations combine? Sometimes though, and now I'm going to talk about concepts a little bit more. Sometimes though, uh, you have to to do your best writing. You do have to break this order a little bit. So I'm going to give an example from a game called Fury of Dracula, third edition. For those who care. <laughs> so this is describing an action that the hunter, just the, one of the players. The action that a hunter can do. When a hunter performs a move action, he moves his figure. Again, I would use I would use singular then, but he moves his figure on the board to indicate his new location, which must be a city or a season. So it's saying you move your figure to a place. Then it says, see what are locations. This might seem a little bit odd. It's like, okay, I don't really know what cities or sea zones are. But I do understand what it means to move to one of those places. It's just like, OK, I take my figure, and I just move there. It doesn't matter what these, what these are, given it does show you like this, what the symbol is. So it shows you the, it, it, it gives you all of the information that you need to do this action. It tells you, move a figure to city or season. That's pretty intuitive. Um, but the reason that it chunks off what locations are until later, it's because it has, a, it has a good amount to say about them. 
So this sidebar comes pretty much immediately after. And Fear of Dracula uses sidebars in kind of an interesting way uh, in that it uses them to talk more about the what. It doesn't use them to talk about how you interact with the game. But it uses them to separate big chunks of conceptual stuff from the actual actions. So again, you don't need to read this, but this location sidebar shows you what they are, tells you about what each means. Uh, and so it gives you that information close to where you need it for the move action. Like this is something that, that is, uh, everything about this is fundamentally about moving, how you move around from cities and, and, uh, and seaports. But this information, this conceptual information, is not necessary to understand the move action. It is easier to just say, yeah, when you move, you just put your figure on one of these places, than to first say, uh, okay, we're, we're going to talk about cities first. So there are two types of locations on the game board. There are cities and sea zones, blah, 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 blah. You don't need that to understand what you're actually doing. And so you have to make a judgment about what's more important. If you have a whole lot of conceptual information, um, you may not need to talk about literally all of it before you talk about the action part. So you sort of have to make judgments. Um, you're flipping this sort of pyramid right here. You have actions on top of concepts. Um, so the action would be the move action. And the concepts are what are locations. And you're sort of switching them up. And so you have to make a decision about whether you're going to upset that order or not. And so if you have a whole lot of conceptual information, you, uh, you might want to wait until after you describe the really, really simple action. Don't put it too far away, but it's something to think about. Uh, another great way of chunking, this is just another little example, another great way of chunking is uh, whenever it's helpful, this is especially useful in setup pages, give a little title to your bulleted lists. Um, it's much easier, again, repetition is not a sin if it helps your reader get a little chunk first. So, one, place game board. I can understand that. Like, literally anybody can understand what just place game board means. Set influence track, set time track. It gives you that very, 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 very short thing. It's not only helpful for, for chunking to help people learn, but it also makes it so much easier when you're going back to it to reference it. You can just skim down all of the titles and go like, oh, how do I set the time track again? Oh, okay, it's right there, okay. They even, they do you one better even, and they even show you the components literally right next to the things that you're using them for, so. Scythe, uh, board game, is uh, another game that does this really, really well. They do chunking really, really well. Um, again, as before, you don't have to read this. But what Scythe does, so inside, um, as in many games, you have a whole bunch of actions that you can do. And what Scythe does is it very explicitly and consistently separates its conceptual information from its action information from its other limitations and edge cases. So near the top of this page, I kind of condensed some stuff that's in the middle. Near the top of this page, uh, so it's talking about the produce action. At the top of this page, uh, it's 
saying, it's giving you basically a summary it's of, of what you do in this action. It says, pay the cost, choose up to two different territories, uh, and all workers on the of those territories may produce. So it gives you just the basic action up top. It expands on it below. And then at the bottom of the page, it goes through all of basically the limitations and edge cases. It explicitly, yep, I'm just about It explicitly styles all of them. It gives you a title for all of them. So this one says, payment is required. No limit. Workers are permanent. So for all of these all of these limitations and all of these extra things, it waits until it's given you the basic thing to talk about the extras. You give the basic idea and then you can expand. You must do it consistently though, or else your readers are going to get confused. And that's it. That's all. Uh, we have eight minutes for questions. Yes. So earlier you said break up uh, some detailed information in separate paragraphs. Mm -hmm. When would you suggest using bullet points or underline to emphasize importance? Yeah. So 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 yeah. So I didn't talk as much about text uh, in this presentation. That's more on that. But basically, um, you want to use bold uh, defining new terms. You might even have a different. Uh, a, a whole different style for that. Like some publishers have a term-defined style. Um, new terms. Or if something is explicitly different from something you described before. So uh, if, for example, you say, uh, if, uh, uh, if you control all of the territories in this region, blah, blah, blah. And then on the paragraph under that, if you say, if you do not control, like basically when you see something that is almost exactly the same as something that you've said before, but you want to point out that, okay, this, this, is, this is actually how it's different. If you have a whole bunch of text and you just need to change something in one place, that can be a place you can use bold. Um, another place that you can use bold or call out box is a condition that would end the game. Basically anything that, that is so, so drastically important that you, you probably all, everybody always wants to know. Um, so for example, if you're writing a section about like uh, your health, for example, say your character and you have health, um, and if you have a line that says if your health gets to zero, you die and you lose the game, that is a case I would recommend using bold or callout boxes. If something literally ends the game. I tend to be pretty sparing on bold. Too much is going to confuse your readers because if everything is important, then nothing is important. Other questions? I know I had some during. so. Yeah, do you have another? Uh, uh, yep. Um, how, how important do you think it is to go into a strategy for the game? Or is that something you should mostly be prepared to figure out? Well, I mean, strategy, that's the why, right? That's the why you're doing something. Uh, if you're putting in strategy in your game, make sure that it's in its own confined section. Clearly mark it as strategy. Make sure it doesn't intermix with any rules that you give. It is totally fine to give strategy. Just make sure it doesn't interfere with your player's learning. Um, it's your judgment on whether it's useful to your players or not. You're ultimately the designer of your game, but it's fine. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it at all. So. Section. How important is that if you're if you don't have that many components, or saying that as you 
setting it up, like you use all your components and set up really quick and stuff? Well, if you only have so many components that you can put it all very easily in setup, then fine. Just make sure that you're graphically showing the components um, and make sure that uh, if it's important to the core loop, make sure you talk about it immediately after setup. But if you if you only have like one component, then yeah, you, you don't really need a section if you just have one component. Um, when you're going over separating out some of this Y or these outlier type things, yep. um, several a lot of different games have you know uh, fringe case ways of winning, shooting the moon mm -hmm. so to speak. Yep. How important is it to give a lot of on, on those outlying ways of winning? Elder book. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, well, the first question about that would be whether. I, I, so it's a question, sort of the design of the game. If there are lots and lots and lots of weird, finicky edge cases for winning, that's a, a little tiny bit of a red flag for the design. But if you're designing a game for the proper audience in mind that wants a game with lots and lots and lots of kind of you know, edge casey ways to win. I would still recommend every place it's relevant pointing it out with a callout. Like, if anything is worthwhile of calling out in your rulebook, it's how you win or lose. So, yeah, I, I, I would, I mean, I, unless, given extraordinary circumstances, I might do something different, but my, my first place I would go would be to, yeah, just call them all out. Shoshana. So, um, if, a, if a game book has uh, a great deal of study material, mm -hmm. right? like you have a, a big history and all this, yep. I'm assuming that goes in, obviously, like the component section. So, the setting is interesting because, um, again, it depends upon how, m how much you have of it, whether some of it is uh, uh, relevant to rules you're teaching, uh, and so you can you can introduce setting in a whole bunch of different places. I mean, as as you as you know, you can introduce setting in a sample adventure that you include. You can you can include setting in an introductory story. You can include setting in a whole chapter. Uh, where that chapter goes, um, usually, it, it I think it really depends upon form factor. Um, what I usually find most useful for big core books is up front to have a little kind of almost setting summary section that shows like the big pictures of what the setting is about. Uh, and then if you have a whole bunch of additional content, I think Atomic Robo by Evil Hat does it this way. They have a little uh, kind of setting summary in the beginning and then they have a whole big chunk of setting in the back. Uh, and so if you have like a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of setting, I would usually recommend that sort of structure. Um, for smaller things, it depends. It's more of on a case-by-case -case basis. You can get away on smaller things with putting the setting at the front. Yeah. Any other questions? Yep. Yeah, also if anybody would like more rules stuff to look at, references, um, this also has a nice little exercise on it to reorganize Scythe's rules based on the conceptual order that we talked about that you can play with. Thank you. So. Thanks so much. Yep, totally. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much.